Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. If you want to get something in life, then you've got to set your mind to, to achieving it. And if it's not happening what you're doing, then, then change what you're doing. Today I'm talking to Tom Sampson. Tom is CEO of the Rolls-Royce Small Modular Reactor Consortium. He has about 30 years of experience in the power industry at various senior level roles in the UK and internationally, and we're going to touch on all of those things. Tom, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to see you. Thank you, Andrew. And given your uh, international experience and globe trotting, uh, I'm wondering how many countries we're going to visit during the next half an hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my career does resemble something of a, a convict on the run for a number of years. <laughs> Either that or Wicker's World or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start, start at the beginning. Uh, you grew up in Kirkcordian Fife in Scotland. Tell us a little bit about what was life like as you were growing up. Oh, it was great. I've got great, very fond memories of growing up in Kirkcaldy. It was a different world back then. You, that was back in the days when you would you'd go out in the morning at you know, the time you got kicked out of the house and you'd come back before it got dark. And what you did in the intervening you no know, twelve or fifteen hours at this time of year in the day is a uh, is a mystery and it's hard to hard to recall how you filled the time. But lots of uh, adventures and and fun. Um, uh, in Kirkcaldy and we, I lived on the edge of town so there was lots of time spent in in the woods and uh, on streams and down on the beach in Kirkcaldy as well so yeah it was, it was a great great time to grow up and in the 80s uh, it was a great time as well to, to grow up and uh, somehow I've managed to absorb from that time uh, a, a vast pop knowledge and, <laughs> and so the, the music of the 80s is still with me to this day because that was a really a great, uh, a great uh, soundtrack to growing up in the 80s. And, uh, uh, but it was great fun. I, I lived in uh, uh, a council house. I came from a very working class background. I would probably say aspirational working class. We ended up buying our, our council house and uh, I was probably the first in my family to, to go off to college. So yeah, but it was, a, it, was, it was an exciting time and lots of fun memories. And So you, you did go to university in, in Edinburgh and, and you did energy engineering. Now people have heard of mechanical engineering, civil engineering, aero engineering, chemical engineering. Energy engineering sounds interesting and really set you up for what was to come. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it was a, it was a rather you know, uh, interesting choice at the time. And I, I do remember the decision kind of being influenced by you no know, other options. I was looking at the time, economics and accountancy and, and how do I you know, plan a future and, and make a choice that will be sustainable. But energy kind of resonated with me. Kokori was a mining town. We had two pits. Uh, we'd just been through the miner strike and it was what it was 85, 86 when I was applying for university. So you know, that is in my subconscious as a kind of backdrop, the importance of energy and Scotland's got a big oil and gas uh, in still then, even bigger than it is now, but that was a big part of the landscape. And this course at Edinburgh, at Napier, Polytechnic as it was at the time, had been set up in late 70s as a result of the energy crisis, where they thought we need to try and educate 
pupils and students about the whole wider energy sphere to, to help them go out there and, and help manage energy. And on the course, uh, it was really geared towards you know, probably more mechanical, but I'd say the people that left the course, my graduate cohort, went off to do things in like HVAC and building services and that type of stuff and energy management on a more uh, commercial or, or uh, industrial basis. A bunch of guys went to work in oil and gas and then I and some others went and ended up in the power industry. So it was quite mechanically focused, but it covered a whole range of things. Um, it was because it was a polytechnic, we had industrial placements and that, that gave me the my first uh, overseas opportunity because I, I remember studying French as well as energy engineering so that I could then do my industrial placement in France. So I had to, uh, had to, had to endure endless hours uh, prior to that industrial placement studying French in, in, in Edinburgh, which was great, great, I enjoyed it. But it's remarkable how much you can learn French just by living in the country. And I, I soon surpassed what I'd learned in the classroom within a few months. And by six months in France, I was, I was relatively fluent. I, I can still conjure up that fluency after a few bottles of red wine. So uh, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> French um, red but, wine, of course. Exactly. But, but, the, but the energy engineering course, I think, was, was my own kind of view of we're always going to need energy. And I think it was that, that was the reason why I felt that's a good career choice to make because it is, it is such, even then I felt it was going to be such an important part of our future. Uh, and, and I think now we talk about climate change and generation options and renewable energy. We never talked about any of that stuff back in 1986 when I was making the choice. But to me, it felt that there was some relevance to energy, both in the sense that I'd, I'd lived in a town where we made coal and we dug coal out the ground and that was important to produce energy and in a country that that had huge oil and gas reserves, which were important to create an energy. It felt, it felt natural to me to be part of that landscape yeah, somehow. Yeah. And how, how do you think you changed yourself or what did you discover about yourself during university? Because you are sort of pushing yourself outside your comfort zone and particularly, you know, doing an, a, a placement in, in France, learning another language, you're pushing the boundary all, already. So what do you think you learned about yourself during that? Yeah, I, I think it, it, it shows it showed to me that I mean, I, I must admit, I didn't really I, I wasn't a, I wasn't a great student at school. I, I didn't really apply myself. I was fortunate enough to get get through with, with decent, decent uh, results. Um, and I probably applied some of that in Edinburgh in the first year or two as well. It was much more about the social uh, social events. And we had more than enough uh, university student uh, bars and, and, and discos to go to in Edinburgh with Harriet Wall and Edinburgh University. Uh, Time for Medicine, I remember, the one at the doctor's uh, uh, pub up, uh, up off the meadows near the university on Friday nights and so on. So there was a lot of socialising in the first couple of years, but then I realised I need to knuckle down here and, and actually create something that I'm going to be, be reliant on as my future career in terms of a qualification. And that, that, that my time at university showed me that Actually, when you apply yourself and when you do focus on that outcome, you know, and you, there's a direct correlation between the amount of energy and effort you put in and the results that you get out. And that, that kind of surprised me a little bit that, that I was able to, by applying myself and devoting myself to that uh, effort, I was able to actually get some decent results. So that, that was the first time it occurred to me that, no, actually, you got to think about the outcome. And then make sure you put the input in at the start to get the outcome. It doesn't just happen. And if you want to get a really good outcome, 
you've got to put more pressure in and make more sacrifices at the start to get a better outcome. That, that was kind of the thing that struck me, I think, most that, of the that, That's a big lesson. I, I, I learned that in a different way. I was wondering where everybody was and discovered they were all working in their rooms when I wanted to go out <laughs> midweek. So was the other way. <laughs> My son's 15 and he's... I'm just trying to teach him that lesson. Probably five years earlier than he's probably open, he would have to <laughs> learn it, but he's starting to realise it already. So that's, well, that's that's a good thing to share with him. That is a good thing to share. Sometimes you have to learn these things for yourself too, don't you? Um, so, so as that as your university uh, course was was coming to an end, what what thoughts did you have in your mind? I mean, it sounds like you'd had this fantastic industrial experience. Were you keen to get out and get into industry? Well, again, it, it was a rather fortuitous industrial placement. I had no choice in where I would end up when I got to uh, Bel I ended up in Belfort in France uh, at the Alstom uh, campus. I, I joined in April 1989, which actually was the, the first the first uh, day that they became GEC Alstom, or as they say in France, GEC Alstom. Uh, and so that, again, was another kind of fortuitous arrival. So I, I arrived there as a, as a, as a student from Edinburgh a time when they just became a, a partnership between GEC and Alstom, these two huge British and French engineering firms coming together. Um, and, and then through my placement there, I was, uh, I was encouraged to apply for sponsorship uh, from my final year at university, because that was at the end of my third year. I had to go back for another year at Edinburgh uh, to Napier. Um, and so I applied for sponsorship. Uh, and the guys in Trafford Park in Manchester, because they were the equivalent to the team that I was working with in Belfort, uh, decided to sponsor me for my final year. Um, and, and actually, when I was in Belfort, I was working in the power plant design team. And uh, whilst Belfort had a huge amount of variety of things, they were making the TGV there, they were making frame nine gas turbines with GE under license, and then they were also that they had this power plant. Uh, engineering office that was designing and delivering power plants all over the world uh, from a French perspective. No, they were delivering power plants in Egypt and in, in various parts of uh, Africa and Asia. And so I was, I was exposed to some of that design activity just as a, as a, as a student on an industrial placement, um, as well as obviously learning French. Uh, it was giving me an exposure to the kind of bigger world of what engineering uh, was like. And I think I'd always, maybe there's it's not even a personal thing, maybe it's a Scottish trait. We always seem to, Scottish people, want to explore the world and travel. And so France gave me that, that excitement. And then these opportunities in power industry were global. It felt like that would be a really cool thing to get involved with. So uh, that's why I decided to then apply for sponsorship in my final year. And then with the sponsorship came a, a graduate opportunity to join GC Alstom in, in the UK doing, doing power plant uh, design work, which was great. I, I did briefly join the Milk Round and all the merchant banks came to Edinburgh and we were offering new opportunities to go into banking. And I think I, I, think I dodged the bullet there. <laughs> well, well, I think we're very grateful you dodged that bullet, actually, Tom. Um, so uh, just give us some examples of some of the things you were doing. So you, you ended up in Trafford Park, is that right? And you were... Yeah, that, and that, that again, I spent about five years there. Yeah. Uh, I, I joined the IMEKI. Um, I was a, a graduate uh, on their continued professional development programme. I had my mentor, a guy called Derek Quigley, who I later worked with in Abu Dhabi. He joined my team there when we were delivering the Tawila project. Uh, and a couple of guys actually from Manchester, from Trafford Park, uh, I brought to Abu Dhabi with me to help me when we delivered the Tawila project, including another guy called Martin Slater um, as my technical director. Um, but so I developed some really good relationships there. But what was really exciting then in Trafford Park 
Uh, it was kind of exciting, but it's also sad because we were dismantling the, the, the LP steam turbine factory facilities that were there in Trafford Park and selling those big heavy engineering machineries around the world. But our office, we were in what was called the Westinghouse building, a red brick building uh, on the site there. And we were doing all the power plant design work uh, and engineering support uh, for all these power plants that we were trying to sell. They were still in the days when they were still working on the 900 megawatt uh, standardized uh, plant for the for the CGB as it was at the time. Uh, then we were involved in the transition in the dash for gas. So I worked. I was given an opportunity as a graduate to go and work in different departments as part of that kind of career progression, which was fantastic. But then I really enjoyed working in the tendering department. So we were putting together the bids and the tenders for all these combined cycle gas turbine plants, Little Barford, Connors Key. Um, uh, there was a range of them in the UK, Park and Reach. Uh, but then there's also a large one that was in um, in Hong Kong called Black Point, which was a uh, a 9FA big gas turbine. But it was a single shaft facility. So the steam turbine and the gas turbine and the generator were all on one shaft, which was really cool, really ex yeah. exciting. Um, I'd, done a, I'd done my first nuclear experience as part of that graduate process with GC Alstom because I one of the sections of your uh, process is yeah. three-month industrial uh, site experience and so I managed to, to, to position myself to get sent to Dia Bay so I worked on the Dia Bay project because uh, GCL still were doing the the uh, power island with Framatome doing the nuclear island so I was sent over there to uh, I actually got a really good experience experience there I was responsible for commissioning the auxiliary steam system which takes the steam from the nuclear island and and creates clean steam for the power island. So I was responsible for commissioning that. I had about four months to do that, um, which was great experience being responsible for that as a young graduate. Um, and then got involved in all these different tenders and, and spent a lot of time on the tender for, for Black Point. And that was a great experience as well because we were a partnership consortium, I should say, with GE and Schenectady, mm -hmm. with uh, Rugby doing the steam turbine. Uh, and GC Alstom doing all the balance of plant and integration, and then um, and then uh, Babcock as it was at the time doing the HRSG or the steam the heat recovery steam generator yeah. uh, up in up in Renfrew and down in Crawley. So and actually, I, I was so I was just gonna, I'm just getting the, 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 this picture of you and and um, not quite sort of wide eyed looking around at all these opportunities, but sort of throwing yourself in with energy into all of these different opportunities oh, absolutely. as you moved around the company, you went overseas, you got involved in all sorts of projects. Were you, were you sort of, you know, is, is that the true picture? Did you ever feel, I, I don't know anything, why am I asking me to do this? Am I capable of commissioning this plant or anything like that? Or were you always forward leaning into those sorts of things? Um, absolutely. No, recognizing I didn't know anything. That's what was pushing me to get into these different areas and find out stuff. <laughs> I had to I had to argue quite hard to get to get sent to uh, Dia Bay. Right. You know, like, there's all this tendering work was going on in the UK for all these combined cycle plants. And uh, my boss at the time, who's still a great friend, uh, a guy called Eve Lintz, who was with uh, Alstom then, is now with, with Arriva. He's just recently retired. I'm still in touch with him. He's a great guy. Uh, he, he was keen for me to stay and work on the, uh, the, the tendering work we were doing in the UK. Um, but my engineering director was a guy called Bill Torrance, and I'd managed to convince him it would be a great thing if I got sent to China. So he, he managed to convince Eve Lintz to let me go. And that was a, that was a turning point. And that, that China experience really opened my eyes to the world. I would go to Hong Kong for weekends and stuff and just enjoy that kind of culture and, and environment. And so I always kind of tried to push myself into those spaces to take advantage of the opportunities that were there mm -hmm. rather than 
sit back and wait to be to be asked. And it was a great environment because there was people there with 30, 40 years experience. And so they were very, very willing to help a young young engineer who was inquisitive and wanted to learn more. And I remember sitting with, with guys who'd worked in Trafford Park for all their career for 40 years yeah. um, and, and who would get their pencil out and a, and a square notepad and explain to me you know, concepts around you know, condenser design and cooling water flows and, and steam mm-hmm. turbine power and performance and vacuum and all that stuff. It was just valuable, invaluable experience to be exposed to that level of heritage as such a young engineer. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what we've got to make sure we create today in this, this industry. We've got to provide the environment for that knowledge transfer to take place Absolutely. in a sustainable and in, in, in a welcoming and in an exciting and a growing environment. That, that's what we've got to, that, that's what really excites me about what we're doing with SMR. Because the, the talent that I saw and that heritage that I saw when I joined Trafford Park with GC Alstom, We've got exactly that same landscape within within Rolls Royce and within yes. the SMR consortium that we've been developing yes. uh, on the program, and that that experience and that knowledge, the opportunity now to start to transition that to the next generation and give them the opportunity to learn from people uh, who've got 30, 40 years experience in the nuclear design space exactly. is just invaluable. And and you can't learn it from a book. It has to no. take that sort of working together, explaining, understanding, and it's almost like the unwritten stuff, the, the, the knowledge that's in there and not written down, which is so valuable, isn't it? Well, I, rem- I remember a phrase. There was a guy who sat in the corner, Bill Colburn, uh, a great engineer, a really gentleman guy, big man city fan for all those years in the 80s and 70s, which I'm sure he hopefully he lived to see the successes in the last few years. Um, but Bill was a great guy. And he, he had this phrase, I would be trying to work out all these different equations and he would always sit back and go, well, a man on a galloping horse can't tell the difference. And so you would move on from that kind of focus on a single uh, solution to the bill reminding you, as long as a man on a galloping horse couldn't tell the difference, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Very good. But you're, but you're absolutely right. That sort of uh, transfer of knowledge, the working together, the creating the opportunities for the new engineers industrial placements or all, all moving around businesses moving around the world and the, and the, and the opportunities are so important and well, well let, let's carry on with your story because you didn't stay no, not very far long, did you <laughs> we haven't got very far let's press on so so i guess was it the international pull or, or the opportunities that arose from your international experience that led you to your next step at uh, maribeni yeah, I think, I think it was. I think, if I'm honest with you, uh, the big project I worked on was Black Point with China Light and Power in Hong Kong. I actually was given the opportunity to deliver the tender. Uh, we submitted this tender. We were competing against Siemens. Um, and I remember delivering our tender that had been in cardboard boxes. I had to take it as hand luggage all the way to Hong Kong from <laughs> Manchester because we had no time to deliver it in a big professional delivered service because we were changing the, the details up to the last minute. And we got to the room, China Light and Power, delivered this uh, tender and it's 50, 50 boxes all kind of battered and torn around the edges. And in the corner sat this gleaming titanium suitcases filled with a Siemens tender. Uh, and we thought, oh, crikey, we're up against it here. Anyway, we won. We won the tender. We got the project and we, that became a big part of my career at GCL. So I'm working on that with GE and rugby and, mm-hmm. and Babcock. I wanted to go to site and be involved in commissioning. And that opportunity wasn't wasn't available to me at the time. So that caused me to think, well, what else can I do? Yes. And then this opportunity came up with Mara Benny and, and, I, and I took that opportunity, partly because I was in a 
relationship with a girl at the time and she was moving down to work for Ladybird Books. We'd been at university together. We were living in Manchester. Uh, and so she was moving anyway. And I thought, well, do I want to try something different? And so this opportunity came up in Milton Keynes and that's why I responded to it. So again, it was, it was probably circumstances as much as it was premeditated. Um, but I'm, I'm glad I took the, took the step. I'm glad yeah. I took the step because Mara Benny at the time were mainly doing EPC work. So they were a you know, Japanese uh, mm. contracting firm that would pull together various companies. And I learned a lot from the Japanese style of doing things because Japan is, is famous for you know, how it can create stuff and collaborate and make things. They haven't got a lot of natural resources. They rely upon yeah. lots of imports. And Marabeni is one of the big trading houses. There's about five big trading houses and they grew out of the need to trade and to collaborate. And I learned a lot from working with my Japanese colleagues. I was with Marabeni for the best part of 16 years in the end. Uh, and that, that again, was, was, was a massive international uh, roller coaster journey for me. And, and I, the thing that I learned in that process was when I got into that environment was the importance of building up those relationships and, and mm -hmm. building up trust because that, that got you so far in terms of how much you could actually then take on in terms of responsibility. And yes. so you had to really prove yourself and build trust and get people to, to believe in you. Then, then you would then be able to take on more and more responsibility and take on bigger and different challenges. Yeah. And, and how do you do that in different parts of the world? Because you've got different local cultures, customs, ways of doing things. But, and yet underneath it all is that element of relationship and trust. Yeah, I think, I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's very simple things like showing you can get things done. So, no, I'd, I'd go and attend a meeting and then I would, I would write the meeting up. I'd create some minutes and I'd share them with the people within 24 hours. So we all knew what we'd said and what we'd agreed. Uh, and I probably had an a, a, a inbuilt kind of style of project management. And I was always kind of quite organized, not necessarily in every part of life, but certainly in work in terms of methodical about going through stuff. And I think engineers are, are blessed with that kind of logic and methodology thinking that when you apply it then to business and to projects and to relationships, it can really you know, bring those same skills to, to life in a different way. Mm. Um, and I think that that's uh, through, through life. I learned one lesson. If, if you, if you do what you say you're going to do, then that, that, that becomes your defining, defining yes. kind of quality. And, and if you do, if you say a lot of stuff, don't do a lot of stuff, it, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with people. But if you, if you do what you say you're going to do, uh, and, uh, uh, under promise and over deliver, then you're, you're going to be in a better place um, yes. in terms of building yes. relationships and building trust. Um, because people want to people want to work with people that they know can get things done. Mm. They want to work with people that they know they can they can rely upon, uh, and that's true in every culture yes. um, and every walk of life. And so they're they're kind of common traits that I think are are really important. It's about you know, doing what you say you're going to do, doing it well doing it better than they expected and, and just building on that reputation. That, that's what really makes a difference. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. So um, let's sort of move, move on in, in, in your story. And, and we're now sort of um, early 2000s, I guess, with, is it Tawila Asia Power Company, Abu Dhabi? Yeah. Yeah. So the Tawila is a turning point for me uh, in many ways. Um, as I said, Mara Benny, when I joined them, were doing EPC work. They were a contractor. Then they got involved as an equity investor, as an owner, but they were a, usually a minority owner, partial owner, alongside bigger players, whether it be um, National Power or Exelon or NRG or 
of various other mm. energy companies at the time. So they were learning from them and not, not taking on too much before they could really uh, be capable of taking a lead role. Tawila, by then, they were capable of taking a lead role. And so I was, I was uh, Marabeni with the lead, lead of that consortium. We'd started bidding already for a number of other projects in the Middle East. There was a lot of capacity underway in the Middle East, the power and desalination plants being built, given the growth in that part of the world. And we bid for a few things. I'd, I'd already ended up by this time in New York uh, with Marabeni because we were starting to look at other things in the US. And back, that was back in 2002, 2003. We were looking at renewable projects when I think the the wind capacity in the US was 0.002% of the megawatts. We only had about two wind farms <laughs> at the time in the country. Uh, and we were looking at opportunities there. But then I got dragged into these uh, Middle East projects, much to the uh, chagrin of my wife, who was now had been moved to New York and was now uh, watching her husband get on a plane to London or Abu Dhabi every week. And she was, uh, by this stage, heavily pregnant with our first child. Really? Wow. <laughs> um, but we, we were successful in bidding for Tawila. Um, and again, Marabeni were in a lead role. I led the development effort for all the technical pieces, all the engineering assumptions, EPC contract negotiations, EPC assumptions, all the assumptions that went into the financial model around our own end, our performance, our availability levels, and all the budget we put in place for how we're going to run the facility. So I was a developer on all those technical and O&M assumptions. Then we were successful, we were the lead bidder, then we were successful in negotiating the deal and secured the contract. And I remember saying to my, my Japanese colleagues at the time, we need to think about who's gonna run this company. It's a $3 billion company. We've got all this debt and all this equity and we've got the UAE government, Abu Dhabi government looking to us to deliver. We need to think about who's gonna run it. I said, um, have you thought about that? And they said, oh, that's a good, good point. I said, look, well, if you if you can't find anybody, I'll do it. And he said, no, no, we'd like you to do it. And at the time, I was only 34, 35. Um, and then I thought, crikey, this is this is a huge opportunity um, to run this and as a privatization. So we'd, we'd acquired a thousand thousand megawatt and uh, um, sorry, about, yeah, 900 megawatt and uh, 100 million gallons a day uh, desalination plant with 400 staff that was producing about 15% of the UAE's or Abu Dhabi, I should say, is yeah. power and water 24 uh, seven. And yeah. I took over this thing on day one. And I remember having just been at the, the, the signing ceremony for all the documents, because I was the CEO of the project company and I signed all these documents. And I remember getting in the car and going to site and suddenly realizing it was my first real CEO assignment uh, and I was 34, 34, 35 years old at the time, thinking, I'm driving to site and there's about 400 people waiting for me to turn up. Don't know who I am. Don't know what I'm going to do. They don't know, they don't know who I am or what I'm going to do. I'm, I, I've got to think about how am I going to turn up? How am I going to appear to these people? What do they, what do they, what do they expect of me? How do, I, yeah. how do I instill some degree of confidence in them that they're, they haven't got this crazy young Scottish guy let loose on this, on this big facility? So that was, to me, a real, a real experience by being given that opportunity by, by my Japanese colleagues to, to, to the three guys who were involved in that, uh, Kakanoki-san, who's now the CEO of Marabeni Corporation, which is one right. of the five big trading companies. He's the CEO of the whole company now. Mm -hmm. He was the guy who gave me that opportunity along with another guy called Miyata-san and Toyoshima-san, sadly both of whom have, have passed away now. But, but being given that opportunity by those guys in Marabeni at such a young age who put their trust and faith in me uh, having, having had built up that relationship with them for the previous uh, seven or eight years yeah. was a turning point for me. And I remember 
at the closing ceremony with all the Abu Dhabi stakeholders. And there was a bunch of guys from Fickner, a bunch of the Abu Dhabi government uh, engineers looking at me going, we've got our eye on you, Samson. We're not quite sure why they've given you this job. You don't look young. You don't look old enough to be able to deal with this kind of challenge. And sure enough, over the, the next few years, I developed relationships with them. I built trust from them. I delivered what I said I was going to deliver. I looked to them for guidance when I needed help uh, and, and support when I needed support. And they appreciated that as well. And by the end of it, we became became firm friends and they, they, they were confident that Marabeni had made the right decision. And as part of that process, there's another element here, again, relationships. Yeah. One of the young Emirati guys on my board at Tabila was a, a young uh, engineer called Mohammed Al-Hamadi, who then went on to set up the nuclear ENEC program in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and I ended up I ended up working for him eventually as well as the CEO COO when I joined Enoch as their yes. uh, CEO when they started the Baraka program about probably about five or six years later. So it sounds like there's some really golden nuggets of, of advice in this from your experience, Tom. On the one hand, there's the whole element of what I say I do, I will deliver, and building trust in that way. On the other hand, there's the the importance of building relationships with the right people. And building yeah. that trust by by that sort of process but there's another one which is it feels like you are happy to jump into the deep end when an opportunity opens up to you or even if you push for the opportunity because you, you want it there's a hunger in you and a, a striving to make a, a big contribution so where some people might feel i'm happy in my comfort zone you know you are always pushing that boundary to grow is, is that fair sort of judgment yeah i think that's that's fair i think it's accurate and i think i think in part that i've got a fellow cohort who i'm going to attach some responsibility to for that which is my wife uh, i think i had that I had that inbuilt in me already but she if anything has empowered it and unlocked it so she 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 had she had she had sacrificed a lot in her career by she was a diabetes specialist nurse. She just got her master's in diabetes from Roehampton. She was leading a diabetes nurse practice in Newham in East London when we were living in London. And she had a huge uh, diabetes population that she was responsible for and led that practice of about uh, how many nurses she had working for her. She was a grade I nurse, the highest level of nursing profession in the NHS. And she she agreed that we we would go to New York because again, that was an opportunity that she couldn't, couldn't pass up. But she had to sacrifice her career to do that. Because you can't practice as a nurse in the U.S. if you haven't qualified in the U.S., which I think is a tragedy. Uh, they would have been they would have been lucky to have had uh, Jane's uh, experience for a brief period of time. But Jane then became a, an executive coach. She became a, a coach, set up her uh, various companies. One of them was called Be True to You, which is all about you know, working out what you want to be and being true to yourself and uh, and, and reaching your passion. She she did her training on me, so she would do visualization techniques and where do you want to be in five years time? How do you expect yourself to get there and all that kind of stuff? So she always was my, my, uh, my cohort in this and, and encouraging me to, to push myself. And if I, if I want to do it, uh, to be fair, I couldn't have done it without her backing. You know, the, the changes that I made with a young family, I, I had to convince her to leave New York City with a, with a newborn baby uh, to go to Abu Dhabi uh which is a is a tough uh, tough ask but she she did it and she didn't regret it um we then had to convince her to i had to convince her to move back to atlanta and i then had to go and work in la and commute to atlanta i was in the caribbean so i i lost a lot of time with the family during those early years in pursuit of the things that i wanted to achieve so so that she helped unlock that in me and and, and made me realize that 
if you want to get something in life, then you've got to set your mind to, to achieving it. And if it's not happening, what you're doing, then, then change what you're doing. Or if you're not getting, if you're not fulfilled in what you're doing, then find a different way to get fulfilled in, in that role by doing something different or, or take on another challenge. So, so we, we've done this journey together. And so, you know, she, she's as much a, a reason why I've been able to do these things as my own motivation, but I couldn't have done it without her and the family by my side because I've, I've disrupted a lot of their a lot of their stability uh, but at the end of the day we've grown from it and we've all enjoyed it and my, my daughter was born in new york my son was born in abu dhabi and uh, we finally came back here to the uk about uh, six years ago and none of the kids had lived in the uk at that point they'd always grown up overseas um at one stage they had southern uh, accents and we lived in atlanta georgia which was, was a great thing to have captured on video for them in the future um, but now, now they're back in the UK. Well, they're in the UK. They're thriving over here, and we're we're glad to be back. We finally came back eventually. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's and the other thing I was thinking about that with your wife and and the coach. One of the most rewarding things as a coach is seeing the impact and seeing people change mm. and grow and develop. So I, I imagine there's a there's a sense you know in her of seeing you develop and grow, and actually that's that's a great reward as well to see that impact. Yeah, she's a great cheerleader of mine. That's she Fantastic. absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're going to jump ahead now because I want to kind of bring you up to the present day. So you came, you you, you did a lot of work in in um, uh, the United Arab Emirates, as you mentioned, Chief Operating Officer uh, for ENEC uh, out there. You then came back uh, as CEO and board member of New Gen or New Generation, uh, aiming to deliver the Moorside project. Um, but you're now Chief Executive for the U UK Small Modular Reactor program and i've been right. i've been watching it closely and 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 you know giving advice and anything i can to to help you know sort of behind the scenes on that but just tell us about that program and, and why you're so passionate and excited about it well, i think it's partly you no know, having lived through the new gen challenges of trying to deliver finance and get support for gigawatt that was difficult i mean the inspiration for me coming back to the uk was watching Mohammed Al Hamadi, the CEO of ENEC, leading and championing a domestic program in the UAE. Um, and, and that's what I was hoping to do at NewGen. That NewGen was probably my, my biggest and my, my most important failing in my career. Um, and it failed for a variety of well documented reasons, but I definitely felt personally that I'd let, I'd let people down, I'd let the team down. I hadn't achieved that um, for, for lots, of, lots of different reasons. And that certainly is something that, that's still with me. Um, but I think what, what I still what I believed in when I came back, what I saw in Abu Dhabi and what I think is now even more important in the UK is that we need a national programme. We need a national champion. We need a national uh, a catalyst to, to bring this industry together. Uh, and, and that's what ENEC have done in the UAE with, with the, with the programme there, with, with the, the Baraka facility. They've generated thousands of opportunities for Emiratis to get involved in the nuclear industry. And that's what I'm hoping to do. That's why I was so excited and privileged to be asked to lead this Rolls-Royce consortium on the SMR piece, because it's, it's a UK technology solution. Because going back to my roots of being a contractor and being EPC, we don't call it EPC, we call it EMA, Engineer Manufacturing and, and Assemble because it's different, our, our technology. It's a factory-built, fully-integrated nuclear power plant. And, and again, that, that to me is, for us to now have a national champion that we can get behind as a country that's going to create manufacturing jobs, that's going to create sustainable uh, factories that will be exporting technology around the world, that, that to me is a unique opportunity. And that's what's making me so excited about this, 
this opportunity is. That, and if, if anything, when you listen to what I've done in that career story, you probably couldn't have created a set of conditions for somebody to take on this challenge than what I've been through. And that's why I'm so passionate about it, is that I do think that I can actually make a difference. Um, it's not going to be easy. Uh, we, can, we can spend another podcast talking about the challenges of, of delivering nuclear and, and what we need to do in terms of getting government support and, and finding a way through that. My ultimate goal is to find a solution and get to a point where we're not reliant on, on government support for nuclear projects to go forward and having a sustainable technology that's a commoditized factory-built product that can attract debt and equity and kind of make it a, a, an option for companies to invest in uh, who want an SMR to provide them with clean energy for 60 years independently of, of government is, is ultimately my goal here. That's how we'll grow this business to the, to the levels in which we anticipate. We're radically changing how nuclear gets delivered. It's a, a real, real innovative way of bringing nuclear technology uh, into the generation space to produce clean electrons at a time when there has never been greater demand for clean, clean elect, electrons. And so uh, we, we're, we're confident that we've got the right way of doing it that will bring it to market quickly and at the lowest cost. And one of the most wonderful things in, in hearing you talking about that is the excitement of a, um, a nationally stroke, internationally significant project which is directed at climate change, which is such a motivation these days for young people coming into the sector and being attracted into these sorts of projects. But then going back to your start is the opportunity to work with other nuclear, mechanical, design, civil engineers and actually learn from their experience at this time. And, and, and my, one of my worries, I suppose, is the longer we leave this, the fewer of those really experienced 40 years type people we've got available to transfer that knowledge. Exactly. So I think, look, the time is now. We, we, we can't wait any longer. We've got the technology. We've got the industry. We've got the capability, the talent. Um, and, and we just need to get on with actually delivering programs and projects. We, for us, we're engineering. We're doing engineering. We're getting into GDA. But we're, this is not an engineering project. This is a project to deliver nuclear power plants. And that's what matters. And that's what we're trying to get to next is the point at which we can start building the factories, creating the components, building the modules, delivering them to site, starting them up, connecting them, and then handing them over to customers who will operate them for the next 60 years. And doing so not just in the UK, but as you said, globally. And so giving opportunities for career progressions for apprentices and graduates today that can get involved in a UK space and then expand and grow and support and participate in programs and projects all over the world, how, how exciting would that be for a young graduate or a young apprentice? Absolutely. I guess if anybody's listening to this and they're, they're excited by what you say, they, they can get in touch via the website and uh, absolutely and off, offer their, their help. So I'm going to take you back. I, I, I try and think of a particular moment when I talk to people where, given their experience now, they could offer themselves some great advice. And I'm thinking probably you, you in your first year, enjoying your social life and um, <laughs> <laughs> in Edinburgh. Um, Maybe, you know, wondering whether it was time to get that bit of work done or whatever. If you bumped into yourself in a bar there, what would be your advice to your younger self, Tom? I, I think uh, just to make the point about getting the balance right. Uh, look, I, one thing I have done in all the places that I've been is I've had fun. I've made some great relationships. I've met some great people, some amazing people that I've worked with, uh, and I'm still not in contact with them today. So... Whatever you do and wherever you do it, make sure you do it and find enough time to have fun. 
because life's too short. Fantastic. Tom, thanks so much for that advice and, and your story, which is just inspirational. And good luck to you and your whole team and the consortium in delivering what you've got to deliver. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been great fun talking to you today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.